We are in part 22 of our series through the book of Acts, line by line, and that series is called The Empowered Church. We're really learning about what the early church was like and how it got launched and how it became so world dominant in 300 years. And we've been studying characters and situations and ups and downs. And well, sure enough, we're going to jump into that all over again. Now, we'll have a little bit of a long intro here that's going to lead into the fill in the blank. And we're really going to kind of walk through a concept. And it all begins on this premise. God's ways are very difficult to track. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, now if you're a little Christian nerd or a Bible nerd like me, you get these verses in your head that say things like, well, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, right? We all have those that jump into our mind. But really what we end up finding out is bizarre stuff happens in this world. You could be a super good Christian and man, weird stuff still happens to you. Bad stuff still happens to you. Why is it that it seems like if God is in charge, how come things are going so odd, right? Fair question. Now, any of you remember the show The Amazing Race? Anybody remember that show? Now, I thought when I first talked about this at the 4 o'clock service, I thought that shut down like 20 years ago. Apparently, it's still going on, right? It's, it's apparently in running with Survivor to never die. Okay, so that show's still going. Now, the amazing race, if you haven't watched it, is they put teams of people together and they race all over the world. They have challenges and they're all trying to get to one location ultimately at the end. Whoever gets there first wins. Now, imagine you and I were having a race like that. We were both given maps that had X marks the spot. And it was a lengthy process, but when they say go, it was going to be, let's say, over a week. If we never ran into each other on the way, that would be odd. Because you would think, wait, 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 hold on. We're all heading for the same thing. Don't you think we should probably overlap a bunch? But if we never even see each other, you've got to kind of wonder, are we going for the same thing, right? You know, at the end of the race, you end up finding out, oh, our exes were in totally different locations. No wonder we didn't run into each other. We weren't even heading in the same direction. Unfortunately, that's what happens many times with us and God. The X that he marked out for our lives is not the X we put on the map. As a matter of fact, they're pretty far apart. And what that means is we have a really hard time seeing him along the way. It feels very random. We keep having dreams. They keep getting ruined. We have prayers. They don't get answered. And we're like, man, why are we so far apart on what should happen in our lives? And my suggestion to you is different priorities set different goals. I'm not so sure God's priorities for us and our priorities for us are the same thing. You know, I look, at, I look at God's priorities and I think about kingdom advancement, right? Like he wants the holistic movement of God to happen. We're interested a little bit more in our individual kingdoms, right? He's interested in his glory because he knows wherever his glory is, people are going to be blessed. I'm not so sure we make all of our decisions based on his glory. You know, his, his decision for us and goal for us is a holistic health. He wants the best for his kiddos. We want good now. And what you end up finding out is that we put an X on our life that says, I want to enjoy this life to the maximum that I can. That is not where God put the X 
on your map. He put it in a place of there is a complex, complicated algorithm of where you need to be that his priorities might be made. Now, the reason why all of this matters is that we seem, we seem to live in a lot of disappointment and think that God is not in charge because things aren't going the way we want them to go. But remember, if he has different plans for us and he is a good God, he's probably going to be sifting an awful lot of our prayer requests. Is that correct? Yeah, like you're, you know, Lord, I need a man. <laughs> Actually, I have one in mind. He's very good looking. And the Lord is like, really? That's interesting. Uh, well, here's the thing that I know about you, kiddo. I know that I know exactly what that man is being developed as. I know what you are becoming. I know where you're going. I know all of that. And I know that if I do bless this right now, because it's what you want, all your prayer requests later on will be, Lord, why did you give me this man? <laughs> yeah? So as a good dad, he is consistently sifting what we are asking for because he has a little bit of a different idea in mind. He's looking for something deeper. He's looking for something more powerful for us than we are. We're willing to deal with less. Now, here's the deal. Even beyond God's distinct intentional plans, even beyond our intentional plans, sometimes good stuff happens, sometimes bad stuff happens. As a matter of fact, it starts to feel a little random. And you have to ask yourself, is God in charge or not? Because here's how we think through it. If he is on the throne and he's good, why in the world did he let that happen to me? You see, when something really, really bad happens to us, our faith hits the pavement. You see, as long as things are only kind of bad, we can keep up appearances. We can believe theology we don't own. But when things get really bad, you got to figure out if you really believe it or not. Yeah? And when it all grinds down to it, you have to ask the question, are we left to randomness or is God still involved? Here's the truth of the Bible. He is not an absentee landlord. He is not only the cre creator. He is not only the sustainer, but he is relationally involved in his kids' lives to an intimate degree. Now, whether or not you see that, whether or not you currently believe that, that is the fact. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of things that occur that God may not like any more than you do. You're like, well, he's in control. It must be going his way. Hold up. God created Garden of Eden. We screwed it up. Yes? Sin is not his idea. That is not what he wants. Is it occurring? Yes, it is. So things are occurring that God is not signing off on. You go, well, he should fix it. Oh, he will, and he's in the process of doing so. But in the meantime, some stuff is happening that he's very unokay with. Y'all following me? So you look out, and you're like, man, why is my life going like that? That's bad. Guess what God would say? Yep, that is bad. Yeah? He's going to call it what it is. How many terrible things in your life have turned out for good later on? I mean, imagine if we just sat and reflected on that concept. What was a tragedy to you, you have now seen redemptive elements. Is that true? How many of you know you would never even be with Jesus today if you wouldn't have hit one of the worst times in your life? 
right? I mean, literally, that which was undoing you allowed you to meet the one that remakes you. Y'all tracking with me? Okay, now, the reason why I bring that up is that for a lot of Christians, we keep in our back pockets Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is kind of our little protecting amulet scripture. And so we, it would be, you know, some of us old school will put it on a fridge magnet, right? You know, and we want to read that. Now, I would say, hey, how about we all say it together? My problem with that is I'm not sure we've all memorized it right. So I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to tell you what I think it says and what I think it doesn't say. Yeah? So here we go. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Do you know this one? All right. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say all things are good. Let's just stop right there. This is not a Buddhist philosophy. You just got to get your head wrapped around the fact that everything is really good. You're just not looking at it right. No, God calls some things bad. Amen. Why? Because they're bad. As a matter of fact, it even says in the Bible that death was the final enemy. It wouldn't be an enemy if it wasn't bad. What God wanted was his children to keep walking in his presence and walking in his power. But ultimately, he screwed it up, and now all of a sudden, we had to face death. Now it becomes a difficult thing. Now, did he come and rescue us from that? Yeah, he did, but he's going to call it bad. What happened to you as a child, the abuse you went through, is not a perspective thing. It's just bad. The evil that occurred is bad. God's going to call it bad. The Bible doesn't say everything's good. The Bible says there are some things bad and there are some things good. Here's the other thing the verse doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things start as good. It doesn't say only good things happen to Christians. Because we want to keep believing that, yeah? We want to believe that if I'm a good Christian, everything should work out for me. The Bible doesn't say that you're going to get back everything you lost to the same degree. You know, one of the things that has always kind of frustrated me was uh, people reflecting back to me what they think the book of Job is about. The book of Job is interesting, interestingly not very much about Job. But there's this guy, in case you don't know the story, uh, there's a man that was a super godly guy. This guy was awesome. Well, a conversation starts between God and Satan, and there's a dialogue about will people worship God if he doesn't give them stuff that they want? That's really what the discussion was about. And so God said, all right, let's do a test. Well, Satan just tears this dude apart. Takes away all of his wealth, takes away all of his health, and all of his children die. And this guy is just demolished. And I was talking about this, blah, 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 and talking about the hurt and the pain and everything. And then some, maybe well-meaning but ignorant Bible students would say, well, pastor, you know it all works out. Like, if you look at the end, he gets all of his health back, he gets all of his wealth back, and they have more kiddos. And I said, you tell me any parent here who has lost a child and had another one and is all good now. Are you telling me they don't have the wounds of the loss that they had? The new ones don't eclipse the old ones. You love the new ones and you hurt for the old ones. You understand what I'm talking about? No, you don't always get back the way you want everything to come back. That's not what the Bible says. You're like, well, pastor, you're ruining my favorite verse. <laughs> Here's what I think it does say. God is brilliant. God is creative. And he knows how to create extraordinary things from trash and pain. That's what I think it says. 
What it says is that he's so good at what he does, you may struggle to even see the bad after he gets done with your scenario. But understand this, it started bad. What Satan meant for evil, what man meant for evil, God can turn it around for good. The power of his redemptive ability, his power to work with all that is yucky, is impressive. No matter how messy or complicated a situation is, God is a thousand times ahead of it in terms of anticipating and preparing for it. Some things he causes directly, some things are the result of merely bringing broken people in a broken world. But here's the thing, God's not broken. God's not stuck here. God doesn't have our limited perspective. He sits on the throne that is above all things and he's outside of time. There is no one who is better equipped to watch over your life and look out for you than him. Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It's simply this, God works in all things. God works in all things. If it's sin, he can find a way to redeem it. If it's bad, he can find a way to redeem it. If it's good, he can find a way to maximize it. He knows what he's doing. You can be assured if you're a child of God, every single situation you walk into, it may not start good, but you know it's going to end good. That's our God. Turn with me to Romans chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 12. Turn with me to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, if you don't know much about the Bible, drop it open in the middle, go to the right. You start to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. That's where we're going to be. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. If you're new to Bridgeway, here's how we do it. We're going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to kind of talk through the context and some applications. We'll go back to it, read a little bit, talk about it, all right? Let's do that. It says, now about that time, which we know from studies, it's relatively A.D. 44, they kind of narrowed it down to a very specific date. Herod, the current local king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. This was during the seven-day-long festival of unleavened bread in the spring, and when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover time to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. All right, so we have a new character that jumped in. That is the character of Herod. Herod is not a name. Herod is a title. It means basically royal ruler, okay? So... When you read the Bible and you keep seeing this dude, Herod, he sure seems to last a long time. And you're like, man, this guy just won't die, right? He's like the amazing race. Okay, so anyway, there's a bunch of Herods. When Jesus was born, you all know the Christmas story. Part of the Christmas story brings in what we call the wise men or the magi. You all remember that? They come into Bethlehem and they end up meeting with a guy named Herod. Well, what's interesting is that's Herod the Great this guy's grandfather, okay? So we're a total, totally different generation. That's the guy who gets all paranoid because they're like, oh, we're here to find the king of the Jews. He's like, I'm the king of the Jews. So he kills all the baby Hebrew boys. That weirdo, that psycho, is Herod the Great. It is this dude's uncle, Herod Antipas, 
who beheaded John the Baptist and was ruling when Jesus went through his trial. Totally different Herod. And now we're a little further into history, and now you have a new guy. His name is Herod Agrippa I. Later on, when he dies at the end of this story, his son takes over, named what? Herod Agrippa II. <laughs> okay? So you start realizing you've got to track with the second part of the name, not the first part of the name. Yeah? So you've got a bunch of different Herods. All right. Now, what's intriguing about this guy is... For any leader of the Roman Empire, you have really two jobs. Your job, keep your people quiet and bring in their cash. That's your whole job. Do whatever political moves you need to do to take as much from them, but don't let them go off on a revolution. So this guy was responsible for a lot of Jewish area. Remember, the Roman Empire ran the known world at the time. They had a lot of areas to cover. His territory locally was Jewish. So he would play up kind of the fact that he was a half-blood guy. So his dad was hardcore royal lineage Roman. His mom was from the Hasmonean dynasty. So he would come in and go, man, I'm a man of the people. I'm just like you. Look at me. And he would kind of win them over. He would do a bunch of stuff that they liked so they would kind of like him and keep giving him their money. He was an absolute politician in every sense. Now, he realized the Jews, and when I say Jews, I'm not talking about the Jewish people. The Jewish people were Christians and loved Christians. I'm talking about Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, the same Jewish leaders that wanted Jesus gone, are not cool with this new Christian movement. Once they find out Peter and all those guys are doing a bunch of stuff, and now they just heard they're including Gentiles or non-Jews, like they're making everything wrong. They feel like these guys are heretical. They feel like these guys are bogus. They feel like these guys are ruining stuff. They want them gone. He finds out about that. He's like, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll just pick off their big dogs. He grabs James and cuts his head off. That's what it says when he was put to the sword. He was beheaded, just like his uncle did to John the Baptist. Okay, what's intriguing to me is that they were interested in trying to get rid of these guys, but what's sad is who they're killing. You guys know who James is? Man, Jesus had 12 buddies that he gathered with him, and actually there were 14 of them that were with him from the very beginning of his ministry all the way through to the end we know that 12 of them were selected out and they were called apostles. One of them commits suicide, that's Judas Iscariot. He is replaced by one of the alternates, which is Matthias. So there's still 12. These guys knew Jesus backward and forward. They were always with him. As a matter of fact, it is likely they're young adults, right? Peter's probably the oldest. He was the only one that were known to have been married, and they got married pretty young. So let's say Peter's in his mid-20s or late 20s. Everybody else is younger than that. They believe that John was probably the youngest, and he may have been about 14 or 15 years old. Okay? So you got James and John, their brothers. When Jesus calls these guys, he grabbed a couple sets of brothers. Two sets of brothers happened to be fishermen. So you got Peter and Andrew, James and John. James and John's dad ran a fishing business that was really lucrative. Their dad's name was Zebedee. Their mom's name was Salome. As a matter of fact, super cool family. 
They allowed their kids to go off into ministry. They're like, hey, we got you, right? And you know that they were pro that because mom enters the ministry too. Salome's in it and she is funding a bunch of the operation through the family's money. So you got mom, James, John, they're all in ministry. Dad's still running the fishing business, but he's super pro all of it. These are the brothers we're talking about. I've always been asked by kids and adults alike, if you could be anybody in the Bible, who would you be? Except Jesus, like they always have to say, you know, because that one's a lame answer, you know, everyone. And so I always pick John the Beloved because he, as the youngest disciple, it felt like everybody watched out for him. It felt like Jesus, he was the one that laid his head back on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper saying, who's going to betray you? He was known as the beloved because everyone knew Jesus kind of favored him. And I was like, if I could be anybody in the Bible, I want to be that guy. That guy's awesome, right? He ended up being the only apostle that was not murdered. He ended up taking care of Jesus' mom, Mary. Well, this guy's brother was kind of who he looked up to. James and John were pretty fiery. They were a bit like Peter where they were loud mouths. But they were a little bit more intense. How do we know that? Because they got the nickname Sons of Thunder. Do you remember this? Sons of Thunder. You don't get called that if you're all that shy. Right? So these guys are just, they're ready to throw down at any time. And as a matter of fact, the Bible highlights one story about why they were called that. And it goes something like this. They, uh, Jesus was doing ministry with them early on, and he wanted to go up through the Samaritan region. Remember, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. So all of his crew was like, dude, I don't want to be here. I hate this neighborhood. Jesus is like, hold up, hold up. We're, we got to minister to them too. As they're going through, the Samaritans gather around, and they start to like Jesus. They're like, well, I like this dude. I don't know, you know, I, I think I'll give this guy a shot. But then they ask him, hey, where are you headed to? I know you're just passing by. Where are you going? He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. We're really on kind of a Jewish movement. He's like, ah, shoot. Yeah, okay, dude. We don't got time for you. You keep going. Because, listen, Jews don't like us. We don't like them. It's a racial divide. How about you just step out of our territory? Well, boy, James and John were not having that. How dare you disrespect their king, right? And they're like, what did you say? Right, and it starts getting all tense, and Jesus is like, dude, we just need to leave, right? And the minute they get out of earshot, they're like, Jesus, are you cool with us just calling down fire and burning them all alive? <laughs> Jesus is like, no, what's wrong with you guys? I did not teach you that, I would never do that. And they're like, we would. You're like, ah. Okay, you're not safe. You're not babysitting anybody. That's my point, right? So that's why they were known as the Sons of Thunder. So James and John were in what Jesus called, or the Bible calls his inner three. Out of all the 12, there were three that got to go with him everywhere. Peter, James, and John. They got to see the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see him fall apart in the Garden of Gethsemane. They got to see him raise people from the dead that other people couldn't see. He, they were very, very precious to Jesus. First one to go, James. Just got his head cut off and he's done. That's tough. Says Peter then gets imprisoned. And he's in there for about a week. And the way that they would work in Rome, especially overnight, but they would put four guards on celebrity prisoners. 
They didn't want anything happening. And overnight, those four guards that are attached to you are not only chained to you, they rotate out every three hours so that everyone is alert. You don't lose your prisoner. Okay. At night, the way they would work is they were chained to you all night long. So you're rotating it every three hours. They wake you up, change the chains, right? I mean, it's this whole thing, right? Here's my biggest problem with being chained to two dudes. It's really hard to sleep. Okay, now I just gotta tell you, it's because I'm a side sleeper. They're not gonna be big spoon. I'm not gonna be little spoon. What I'm telling you is every time you try to lean over, they don't wanna lay down. You're like, guys, work with me here. I have a really hard time. They're like, well, I'm not tired. And you're like, well, I'm tired. I'm in jail. And here's the thing. I understand a little bit of what he's going through. Listen, I may not have been in jail, but I have been on a plane. <laughs> now, I suffer from a, a diagnosis called giraffe neck. I don't know if you have ever, ever heard of this. But now, I'm 6'3". Now, all planes are created for horse jockeys. You understand what I'm talking about? Okay, these are not human seats. Now, there are some of you that you're like, oh, I love sleeping on a plane. I can curl up in my seat. Okay, I don't even know what you're talking about. You must just be a large rodent. Because here's the deal with me, man. I can't move anywhere. I can't do anything, right? So I go to Africa. It's 17 hours. I just stare for 17 hours. Why? Because the minute I fall asleep, it's like, oh, and my head starts falling over. Do you understand what I mean? Try the neck pillow. That's a horrible invention. It never works. Do you wear it in the front? Do you wear it in the back? It's stupid, right? It's not helping. And because of my giraffe neck, I still fall to the pillow. Do you understand what I mean? So once again, never been in jail, but I have been on a plane. So once again, this guy, he's trying to get some REM sleep, and he's chained to dudes, and they're not letting him lay down. Do you understand what I'm saying? Somehow he gets to sleep. And that's where we pick up the story again. <laughs> One thing I do want to highlight, though, that I think is pretty powerful is it says, Peter was in prison, but the church was praying. How are we supposed to take that? Are we supposed to take it in the sense that, you know, even when you do everything right, sometimes things go wrong. I mean, they were serving the Lord, they were praying their guts out, and yet Peter's still in prison and James still died. Is that, is that true? Even if you do everything right Christian-wise, can bad things still go on? Yeah. Maybe we should take it like that. Or maybe it means they knew how things work in this world, which is, they were faced with an impossible situation that Peter was in prison, and they knew the only thing they could do was fight on their knees. And so they went into warfare to see if they could get him out. Yeah? Which one do you think it is? I think it's probably both. Yeah? All right. Pick it up, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out in the following morning, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up and said, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. Then he said, Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, now, you just read that. Intriguing story. Pretty cool. Pretty encouraging. But I'm going to lancify it. Okay, because here's why. When I read this story, this is not make-believe. This is real people. And how that really went down is really funny to me. Because let's just kind of walk through it for a moment. Peter finally gets to sleep. Kind of like you're in the hospital. They're waking you up all the time, right? So he finally gets to sleep. And all of a sudden, this light shows up. And an angel shows up in the room. Now, scholars have searched for millennia to find out what was the source of the light, which I solved. It was clearly his cell phone. Because here's the thing. If you have to go to the bathroom at night, what are you going to use? You're going to turn on your cell phone light, right? It's obvious, you guys. Anyway, so the angel's using his cell phone light. And he comes in there because he's not going to light a torch. That's ridiculous. So anyway, he comes in. This light is shining around. And then he hits him. Which is like, have you never woken someone up before? Like, what is wrong with you? He's like, whack! Right? Clearly, it's a dude angel waking up another dude, right? You're like, what do you do? Well, you hit the guy. That's what you do. So Peter's like, what the heck? What just happened here? He wakes him up, and the angel's bossy. Did you see that? He's like, get up quickly. He's like, dude, I just woke up. Put on your clothes. I'm getting dressed. Put on your sandals. We're going outside. Okay, put on your cloak. Are you going to say every item of clothing? Dude, I'm coming. And you got to imagine, Peter doesn't even know this is real. He thinks it's a vision. And the coolest thing about a vision is you can do it in your underwear. <laughs> so he's like, well, you're sure getting dressed up for this vision. I'm not even going anywhere. This is embarrassing. Why are we doing this? But then they start walking out, and they're walking past guards and everything. And Peter's like, oh, this is kind of fun. Boop, boop, boop. You know, as he's walking out. Because he doesn't know any of this is real. Right? And the chains had fallen off his wrist. He's like, that's sweet. And then they get to the gate outside, and the angel does a flex move. Right? He's like, oh, it's all, and it opens up. Right. Now, either he did kind of a Marvel movie, you know, push thing, or another angel went on ahead and was like, and he was invisible, and the angel just winks at him. He's like, yeah, that was sweet. So Peter's like, oh, you know. So he's walking out, and then he gets down the street, and they turn this corner, and then all of a sudden the angel's like, I got another meeting. And he bails and disappears. Peter's like, oh my gosh. I'm outside. This is so weird. I'm really glad I wore my shoes and my clothes, you know, right? And the angel's like, I know, right? Okay. Crazy, crazy story. Now, where do you go when you get out of prison miraculously in the middle of the night? You go to church. Okay. There we go. Let's pick it up in verse 12. When he realized he was outside, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate for him, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's probably just his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. All right, let's lancify it, yeah? Who's John Mark? 
because here's the funny thing. First place he goes is to Mary's house. Why? That's where they held church. Remember, the Jews were using the synagogues. They didn't have any buildings. So they met in homes. You would meet in the wealthiest person's home that could open it up for you. This lady was wealthy. She had servants. She had courtyards. She had stuff like that. That's not normal. So her house is big enough for people to gather. So they're doing all-night prayer vigils to get Peter out of prison. He knows that. Somebody had got the message to him. So he heads over immediately to the church. And he's trying to be low-key. He's like, knock, 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 knock. Sure enough, the young girl comes to the door. She's like, who is it? And he's like, it's Peter. She's like, oh my God! And then she runs. And he's like, dude, would you open? Okay, whatever. And so he's just waiting there, right? And then he's trying to do the Marvel move. It's not working. Like he's trying to open the gate. No, nothing. So he's stuck out there. And they start having some long conversation, right? And so she's like, oh my gosh, Peter's out there. They're like, you're an idiot. Whoa, 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 dude, you got really hostile there really fast. Like, why are you being mean to me? What do I do for a living? I'm your servant. What do I do? I answer the door. There's someone at the door. You must be out of your mind. Uh, no, no, I kind of know the dude. He goes to church here. I see him all the time. I know his voice. Peter is at the door. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. No, he's not. Okay, what do you want to say? I know what I saw. Well, you know what? You probably just saw his ghost. You probably just saw his angel. I'm sorry. What? What are you talking about? Okay, now there was a view back in the ancient world with the Jewish people that God... When he created angels, he gave them assignments to help us out. Now, that is very biblical. They kind of honed it into an idea of a guardian angel philosophy, right? That you had individual angels assigned to you. Now, some of us actually have that view as well. But what's interesting is they said, after your guardian angel is assigned to you for a long enough period of time, they will periodically morph into your image if they're doing assignments for you. So for example, if somebody is praying going, man, I miss them, their angel can go on their behalf, show up and say, hey, on behalf of so-and-so, who I look like right now, I wanted to give you a message. Now, whether or not that's true or legit, that was their immediate guess, which strikes me very odd because every possibility is considered except what they've been praying about all night long. <laughs> Isn't that weird? And the other thing is, let's say it is his angel. He's still stuck out there. Like somebody needs to open the door, right? It never says they open the door, right? Until later on. So when I look at all of this, I began to realize, I think we're still doing this. There's two problems that I think we need to camp on for a second. Number one, they did not believe Rhoda. And I have to ask the question, why? Is it because she's young? The Bible actually says she was a girl. Now, the way that they would break it out is you had basically infant, child, adult. So when you say girl, you assume she's under marrying age, so she's under 14. Does that make sense? Is it because she's young and they're like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, you're too young? Or is it because she's female, right? You're like, okay, liberal pastor. Okay, hold on. <laughs> What happened when Jesus rose from the dead and showed himself and angels revealed themselves to the women? What happened when the women went back to tell the guys? They didn't believe them. It's why? Because in their culture, they had been taught and trained that just like women were not allowed to be witnesses in court, 
because women are too emotional and can't come up with truth. That was their view. So they became untrustworthy. They wouldn't even listen to the women. Is it because she was a woman? I don't know. Is it because she's a servant? And they're like, you're uneducated. What do you know? She's like, dude, I know how to read a guy's voice and I know how to see his face. Come on. It's not that hard. What was her message? Her message was that God revealed their prayers were answered. She had a message that was true and right from God, but they would not listen. As a matter of fact, they got kind of abusive about it. You're out of your mind. Wait, wait, wait. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Okay, so how does that make, uh, what does that mean for us? Well, I don't know. I think it's very possible you've been seeking a message from God, you've been seeking an answer from God, and he's been giving you the message the whole time. You don't like the messenger, and you're refusing to hear it. Could be that you were raised conservative, and you go to church, and then some weird charismatic person comes up, and they're like, oh, I got a word for you, and you're like, no thanks. Like, what's wrong with you, right? Could be that. Could be that someone fired up from BYA has a message for you, but they're too young in your mind because you've been in the church for so long, you know how to do everything, right? It could be circumstance. God had been telling you for a really long time, you don't spend any time with your family, and then eventually you got fired, but you didn't want to hear it that way. And God said, what other way? I've been talking to you the entire time. You're not listening to me. What I'm trying to tell you is many times you've been expecting the voice of the Lord, but it's not coming in a manner that you appreciate, so you won't listen. I think we do it all the time. Here's the other problem with it. They were praying like practical atheists, and I think we do too. Why? They've been praying all night long for one thing to be answered. God, save Peter and get him out. And what happens? God saves Peter and gets him out. They never even anticipated that would happen. That's weird. Do we do that? Yes, we do. There are a lot of us that are praying and praying and praying. We have no real expectation anything's going to change. You're just going through the motions. Now, I was going to preach that, and then I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me a little bit of a disclaimer as I was writing it. It was right before I was going to preach it on, on Saturday night at 4. And it was this. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, what begins from protecting your heart can become practical atheism. Why? Because here's what happens. When you pray for something the first time, your hope is high. You have a lot of faith, a lot of expectation, and then what? It doesn't happen. And then you pray again, you have a two-thirds faith, and then nothing happens. Then you have one-third faith, and then nothing happens. And eventually, you just guard your heart out of your disappointment. And you said, well, I don't know, and you start making all kinds of excuses, all kinds of, you know, kind of, well, God, if it's your will, well, I don't really, and you start hedging your bets, and then eventually, you don't believe prayer matters. Now, you'll still pray because you're a Christian, but you just don't put your heart in it anymore. And you've created such an emotional distance between you and God. Just here's the point. 
If an atheist were to pray, they wouldn't have any confidence either. So what's the difference between us and them? That's practical atheism. If we do not manage our disappointment with God, if we do not have enough of the joy of the Lord being our strength, our disappointment will rot our bones, and then we will separate emotionally from God, and we do not want to pray at all. Y'all, here's the truth. God hears your prayers. You may be praying about something that is super complicated, and it may need a lot of different moving pieces. It may be something that would require the next 25 years to pull off, whatever. You don't even know what you're praying for. You may be praying for things that God said no to right off the bat. You just weren't willing to accept that. So you're like, God, you never answered me. He's like, no, 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 I answered you. I told you no, right? You weren't willing to hear it. But here's the deal. When you pray, after you pray, I want you to keep your head up a little bit. I understand you're still trying to protect yourself. But I want you to keep your head up a little bit that if you're going to pray, look for the answer. It may not come the way you want it, so you don't look so specific. You look at what a good dad would do. But you keep your eyes up. Please don't pray and just ignore. Because if God did answer, you may have missed it. And your faith will continue to diminish. Yeah? The other couple things I saw in this passage were James dies, Peter doesn't. Why? Is it because Jesus loved Peter more? Right? Like, that wasn't very cool. You let one guy die and the other guy gets a miraculous rescue. How come James didn't get a miraculous rescue? Right? It's a fair question. Do you think it really has to do with him loving one more than the other? Was not Peter, James, and John all in the inner three? Were they not his closest companions? Are you telling me Jesus had not enough love to rescue a guy? No. The answer can never be a lack of love. Because here's what's interesting about that. We always play this game in our head. God, why did you answer their prayer and not my prayer? You must love them more. God, why did you give them a gift of this, but not me? God, why did you save their marriage and not my marriage? You must love them more. And we keep playing the game of love because we're so used to flaky love. God's love isn't flaky. It's consistent and constant, and it's more than you can ever imagine. When Jesus Christ came down to earth, set aside the glories of the Godhead, and died on the cross in a humiliating way for sins he never even committed, he did it for you, you should never have to ask if he loves you or not. That has been settled and solved. And you go, well, then I don't understand. A lot of people don't understand. Martha didn't understand when her brother Lazarus dies, who seemed to be one of Jesus' best friends. Remember this? He dies. Jesus walks into town. First thing out of Martha's mouth. Dude, where the were you? I mean, if you were here, this never would have happened because she believed that if God really loved you and God was really there, bad stuff wouldn't happen. We find out from the story, Jesus let him die. Jesus hung out until he died, then showed up. It was purposeful. Why? Because there was something bigger going on. And God couldn't explain it to you anyway. He tried with his other guys. He's like, this is for the glory of God. They were like, I don't understand. And they couldn't figure it out until retrospect. Right? 
You know, it's interesting. We look at that and we go, oh, what a bummer. James dies. Peter's back. Well, I don't know. Let me tell you. Well, who is worse? The first one to die or the last? Because if you're the first one, you didn't see everyone else get murdered. How easy was it for Mary to watch her son hang on the cross? How easy was it for Salome to watch her son James get beheaded? I'm not sure the survivors are always better off. Peter is going to die. He's going to get crucified upside down later on. He's got a brutal one. James goes out fast. Is it because God doesn't care or because God does care? You see, the early church had a very different view of martyrdom. They would look at it and they said, listen, so far, the current statistics for death in humanity are 100%. If everyone dies, I want mine to matter. That's what their view was. And there's no way. I've been yelling about the gospel. I've been trying to share with everybody. And no one's listening to me. If I can die and my life will put an exclamation point on what I believe, then I want my blood to fuel the next generation. And they were all in, man. They were like, I want to die for Jesus because I don't know what else I can do in this life. And so if I can go out there, at least they'll know that I was serious. At least they'll know that I really mean it. And so they laid right into it. You see, I'm not so sure that everybody saw James dying first as the worst thing. You see, Jesus transformed death into something to fear as a glory doorway of glory to glory. And when he did that, he's not concerned about death like we are. You see, as long as you're still in this life, you're in danger. The only time you're safe is by his side. So is it nicer to kill you or nicer to keep you alive? All I'm telling you is that things are bigger than us. And when we can't figure it out, we have to trust the one who does. Last thing I noticed was Peter kept knocking. Knock, knock, knock. Ah! Runs away. Knock, 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 knock. Nobody comes. Knock, knock, knock. He's like, oh my gosh. Because at some point you got to go, my friends are lame. And then you just leave. Because here's the funny thing. You think he has to get in to hide. Do you remember the end of the story? He's not hiding there. He's got another hiding place. He's not even staying there. So why is he still knocking on the door? Because here's why. He knew it wasn't just about him. These people had been crying and sweating and praying all night long for his release, and he was not going to go into hiding until their faith was encouraged and God was glorified. Is he was like, nope, this isn't about me. Man, you guys, I need you not only to know, hey, God is moving on our behalf. Let your faith be encouraged. Hey, get the other leadership. Let them know I'm out of here. I got to go hide somewhere. Boom, he bails. So how does it end? How does this story end? Here we go. Pick it up with me. Verse 18. Probably not like you'd think. Here we go. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered a speech to them. And the people, trying to get on his good side, were shouting, He has the voice of a god, not of a man. 
Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The end. What the heck? That was a weird wrap-up. I was totally in on the whole prison escape, and then it got weird. All of a sudden, they're like, and this dude, he gave a speech. And then all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, worms. Ah, and then all of a sudden, these people are like mad and blast us. And you're like, what the heck are we talking about? Does this have anything to do with this story? It does. Here's why. What was the church praying about? What was hurting their heart? God, James is dead. Please rescue Peter. Lord, if I could get him out of jail, I would. This is an impossible situation. Could you do something supernatural? That was their first concern, right? What happens? What did the story say? God was like, uh, jailbreaks aren't really that hard. He's like, angel comes in, boom, gates open, ta-da! He's out. What was their second request? God, we are under attack. We have a terrible government. They hate our guts. Herod is way too powerful. He's like an immovable force. Is there anything you can do? Oh my gosh, he got eaten by worms. Ah, he's dead. That was it. What was his whole point? Hey guys, you keep using the word impossible. I don't play by your rules. So, yeah. So if it's a leader, I don't know, I'll just kill him. Um, if it's a jail, yeah, I don't know, I'll just send an angel. But here's the deal. When you guys pray, I think you should pray according to my rules, not yours. You see, I'm not limited by what limits you. You see, we walk by faith and not by sight. If you walk by sight, you're going to keep thinking I'm limited the way you're limited, but I'm not. So when you pray, I want you to imagine a world where I'm in charge. I want you to live in a world where when I tell the wind to quiet down and I go, shh, it quiets. I want you to live in a world where when I tell the water to be solid that I can walk across it, it does. I want you to be in a world where I say, a few loaves and fish should be good for a few thousand people. What I'm trying to tell you, kiddos, is that when you pray, don't allow your limitations to limit your prayer. When you pray, I want your faith high. Why? Because I can do anything I want. You see, if we keep our eyes on the problem too much, we think the problem's too big. We might need to get our eyes back on the Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for your kindness. That, God, you are so good. All the things that you do for us, we mostly don't see. So in this moment of clarity, we want to praise you for what you have done in the past, what you're doing now, and what you will do in the future that we will never even track on. You are a good God. You're a wonderful Lord. You're an amazing king. You're amazing to us. Your patience, your kindness, your love for us, your grace for us, your mercy for us is unending. And so, God, in this moment, I just pray that you would infuse us with greater faith. 
that we would walk out of here believing you at your word, believing that you are not limited by what we're limited by. That, Lord, when we begin to pray, we pray with a power. We pray with an expectation. We pray with an anticipation that, God, that you move the way you want to move and you're not hindered by anything. So, Lord, we may know that we walk into bad situations. You know how to make them good. We know when we get bad diagnosis, you were never going to leave us. We know, Lord, that whatever happens, you've already prepared for it and in that we take peace in Jesus name we pray